Well, it's really exciting to be here at NCON 2017. We are here to examine one of the most astounding, significant and disputed events ever to take place. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Jesus was executed by crucifixion on a Friday. He was laid stone cold dead in a tomb Friday afternoon, but walked out alive Sunday morning. And not with a resuscitated version of his old body. Jesus walked out of the tomb with a transformed, immortal body, never to die again. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? Is it even possible? What does it mean? That's what we're here to examine this week. And the fact of Jesus' resurrection is no small sideshow when it comes to Christian belief. The EU's doctrinal basis lists it as a fundamental truth of Christianity. You can see it there on page 10 of your booklet. You might like to open up. Page 10 from the EU's doctrinal basis. The Sydney University Evangelical Union is committed to upholding the fundamental truths of Christianity, including, point six, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, such a commitment meets with all sorts of reactions. Incredulity. How could you possibly believe something that science says is impossible? Maybe derision. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus just shows how stupid Christians truly are. Sometimes it's met with excuses. Oh, well, it doesn't really mean that Jesus was raised physically. It's more of a spiritual type resurrection thing that was going on. Even Christians who believe it happened still struggle to work out why Jesus' resurrection matters so much. It's amazing, for sure, but what difference does it make? Is it really that important? Well, the Christian Bible is clear. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, there on your outline, we're told, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Jesus did not walk out of that tomb on Sunday morning. The Christian message is a sham. It's hashtag fake news. The Christian gospel is not worth preaching. It's not worth believing. Jesus' resurrection is not just interesting or even astounding. It's essential to Christianity. You deny it or disprove it, and the Christian faith is exposed as lies with no power to save. But again and again, in the face of all the incredulity, all the derision and all the excuses, the New Testament proclaims the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we're going to start this afternoon by looking at some of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection that it records for us. So if you've got your Bible there, or your app, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11, we're going to have that read out for us, and as we have it read out, I just want you to follow along, notice anything that just stands out to you, 
And you might like to jot it down in your book at point 10. Just what stands out to you from this account? So first of all, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Scholars estimate that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in about 55 AD, so about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But notice here, Paul is not telling them anything new. He says there in verse 1 that he's reminding them of the gospel that he'd already proclaimed to them in person. And in verse 3, it's the same message that he himself had received. So we're talking here of an oral tradition about Jesus' death and resurrection that had been told and retold in the Christian community for 25 years or so. Notice also that the gospel message that has been passed down has four parts here, there in verses 3 to 5. Each is introduced by a that, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to a whole bunch of eyewitnesses, including Paul himself in verse 8. So Paul is not just passing on something he heard from others. He met the risen Jesus himself. He is an eyewitness. But Paul's not the only eyewitness you could quiz. Notice there in verse 6, Paul reports that at one point, Jesus appeared to more than 500 disciples, most of whom, he says, are still alive. That's significant. Why would Paul mention that most of the 500 are still alive some 25 years later? It's a way of saying, this is verifiable. You can check this out for yourself. You can still talk to most of those who saw the risen Jesus face to face. And notice what else Paul says about this message in verse 3. These truths, that Jesus died, was buried, was raised and appeared, are of quote, first importance. These are absolutely core truths to the Christian message. You can't skip around these truths or try to leave them out. They're core claims in the Christian gospel message. But also there, in verse 2, 
It's by believing and holding on to these gospel truths that we're saved. If you abandon this gospel claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you're abandoning the very gospel that can save you. So believing Jesus was resurrected is no optional extra for a Christian. From the very beginning, it was regarded as core and essential, with numerous accessible eyewitnesses. So let's then move on to the written gospel accounts. We'll start with Mark. Many believe that Mark's gospel was the first written gospel account. Seems that when Matthew and Luke wrote their accounts, they probably had access to Mark's gospel and then supplemented it with other eyewitness material. So let's hear how Mark relates the resurrection of Jesus. Turn up Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Thanks. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid fairly unusual way to end your gospel account, don't you think? Trembling, fear, and saying nothing to anyone. Now, if you look there in your Bible, you'll see that there are some further verses after that first part of verse 8, which, which is where we stopped. But if you look carefully, there should be some sort of note there explaining that the earliest copies of Mark's gospel don't go beyond verse 8 seems that later copyists found Mark's ending a bit abrupt and unsatisfying. So they composed what they considered to be a more rounded ending and added it on. But we probably should just let Mark speak as Mark. So what do we make of this unusual and very abrupt ending? Well, three things to point out. First of all, it is realistic. There's something very real about the way Mark describes it. It would have been a completely freaky experience. You turn up to the tomb to anoint your dead friend's body with spices, which was the standard practice in the culture of the day. You're still full of grief and shock at his execution just two days before. And you're worried about how you're going to get the stone rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. But then you get there and the stone's already been rolled away. And his body is gone. And instead, there's this young guy in a white robe who tells you Jesus has been raised and he's waiting for you now in Galilee. The whole experience would have been shocking, disturbing, frightening. Secondly... Note the significance of their fear. See, in Mark's gospel, 
fear is not an unusual response to Jesus' presence or to a display of his power and authority. For example, if you go back to Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples are literally afraid with great fear. It's the same word used here in verse 8 for the women who fled and say nothing. Or again, when Jesus heals a guy with a demon in Mark chapter 5, or Jesus is transfigured in Mark chapter 9, the response of the eyewitnesses is fear. Something awesome, powerful has just happened here. Mark's telling us that something momentous has happened here at the tomb to Jesus' body. Third thing to notice from Mark's account is it was predicted. Notice what the guy in the white robe says to the women in verse 7. They'll see Jesus again in Galilee, quote, just as he told you. The resurrection of Jesus was not a random, unplanned, unexpected event, at least not for Jesus. Jesus had said repeatedly to his disciples that he would be killed, but then he would be raised back to life. Mark records Jesus making that prediction three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. Well, that's Mark. Let's move on to Matthew. Maybe turn to Matthew chapter 28. How does Matthew relate the events of Jesus' resurrection? Thanks. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." probably noticed a few similarities with Mark's account. The 
angelic messenger from God who announces that Jesus has been raised. He invites the women to inspect the place where Jesus' body had been laid. He tells them to tell the disciples to head to Galilee where they'll see him again. And again, there was that note of events transpiring as Jesus had said they would. But Matthew adds in some extra details as well. Information about the guards at the tomb and the fake news story that was circulated amongst the Jews to explain what happened to Jesus' body. He explains how the stone was rolled away. And he details some of Jesus' resurrection appearances to the women at the tomb and to the 11 disciples in Galilee. Matthew also gives some further reactions of the disciples, not just fear, but also great joy. And both times that Jesus appears to the women at the tomb and to the 11 in Galilee, their response is to worship this risen Jesus. Now, that, that's an amazing thing. These were good Jewish people. And if you could say one thing about the Jews, it's that they believe that there is only one God and no one and nothing else should be worshipped except him alone. And here are these Jews worshipping the risen Jesus. And that ties into a dominant theme for Matthew in his gospel, which is Jesus' authority. Verses 18 to 20 there of chapter 20 are the climax and close of the book, which is where the risen Jesus announces to the disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and therefore they're to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded them. That's Matthew. Let's move on to Luke. Now, many of you hopefully read through some of Luke's account in your review group this morning, so we're not going to read it out loud again now. But let, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 24, and let me point out to you a few things there. When you compare Luke's account to Matthew and Mark, you notice, again, lots of consistent details. The rolled away stone at the entrance to the tomb, the missing body of Jesus, the angelic messengers, though this time there's two of them, not one. Uh, the angels announce to the women that Jesus has been raised and the women pass on the news to others. But then Luke also adds some extra details that are not in the other accounts, particularly the appearance of Jesus to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but also the appearance of Jesus to the assembled disciples in Jerusalem, where he proves to them that he's not some sort of ghost. He shows that he's been truly raised to a new physical life by inviting them to touch him and by eating some fish in their presence. The dominant theme in Luke's account is that all of these events have happened in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And in Luke's account, Jesus himself explains the connection to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then again twice to when he appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. He says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Now, if we had time, I'd get us then to read through the account in John's Gospel as well, but in the interest of time, I'm going to leave you to read that on your own. And we're also going to look more closely at John's resurrection accounts later in the semester in EU public meetings. But there you have at least some of the New Testament testimonies to Jesus' resurrection. What do you make of it? Maybe you've never actually heard all of those accounts before. 
Maybe you've never put them together quite like that. I wonder what your reaction to it is as a package. One observation that often pops up when you do put the testimonies together like that is, what about the inconsistencies? Was there one angelic messenger or were there two? To whom did Jesus appear and when? Was the women's reaction fear and silence or fear, joy and sharing the news? Tom Wright, who has written what is probably the most comprehensive historical analysis by a Christian in recent decades, suggests that actually the inconsistencies are an argument for the authenticity of the accounts. I'm reading there from the top of page 11 in your outline. Have a look there. He says, the surface inconsistencies of which so much is made by those eager to see the accounts as careless fiction is in fact a strong point in favour of their early character. The later we imagine them being written up, let alone edited, the more likely it would be that inconsistencies would be ironed out. The stories exhibit exactly that surface tension which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction and therefore anxious to make everything look right, but the hurried, puzzled accounts of those who have seen with their own eyes something which took them horribly by surprise and with which they have still not fully come to terms. He then cautions us to beware making too much, therefore, of the inconsistencies. He says, to put it crudely, the fact that they cannot agree over how many women or angels were at the tomb or even on the location of the appearances does not mean that nothing happened. We should not try to domesticate the stories, either by forcing every last detail into an over-simple harmony or by forcing them into an over-simple hermeneutic of suspicion. That is, when we say, oh look, the New Testament accounts don't agree, they must all be made up. That's an oversimple hermeneutic of suspicion. Clearly, from the accounts, something happened at the tomb. Jesus' body was missing, and the disciples who discovered the empty tomb claimed to see Jesus alive, to touch him, to talk with him. But we're going to come back to the historical case for believing their testimony in a moment. But first, I want to stop and clarify the nature of Jesus' resurrection. The reason this is important is because people have dreamt up all sorts of different theories over the centuries to get around the claim that Jesus was resurrected. So they've come up with their different theories to explain what happened to Jesus' body and how come the disciples could claim to meet him. So we're going to look at some of these now. Now, first of all, there are the Jesus never really died on the cross theories. You might have heard some of these. If Jesus didn't actually die on the cross then that's why people could see him alive again after the event. The theory comes in two flavours, which I've represented in the diagrams there. Now, to explain the diagram, the shaded part of the diagram represents death. If you're in that part of the diagram, you're dead. If you're above the line in the white part of the diagram, you're alive. So the first theory here is the he passed out but not away theory. 
Here's the claim that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just passed out he, or he swooned. He appeared to die, but actually he stayed on the side of the living. And later, when he was in the tomb, he regained consciousness, got out of the tomb and went on living, presumably, a normal human life. Then at some later point, maybe decades later, he would have died a normal death. Now, the big problem with this theory is that the Romans were experts at crucifixion. They crucified, without exaggeration, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. They knew how to do it. In fact, the New Testament accounts record how the Romans even checked that Jesus was dead by thrusting a spear into his side before they allowed his body to be taken down from the cross. There's no doubt that he really died. But a second version of this type of theory is the he was swapped theory. Sometime prior to his execution, this theory goes, Jesus swapped places with someone else who then took his place on the cross. So someone did die on the cross, it just wasn't Jesus. And that's why Jesus was able to appear to his disciples after his fake death and presumably again he died a normal human death at some later point. Islam appears to put forward this type of swap theory. According to Islamic theology, Allah wouldn't let a prophet such as Jesus die such a horrific death at the hand of the Romans. Instead, before Jesus' death, Allah raised Jesus to heaven and cast his likeness on someone else, and that someone else then died. The problem here is lack of evidence. Muhammad wrote the Quran some 600 years after Jesus' death. There are no earlier documents that I'm aware of suggesting that a swap had taken place. Rather, from the very beginning, as we saw from 1 Corinthians 15, the message that had been passed down from the very beginning was that Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day and appeared. There's just no historical evidence for such a swap. But those aren't the only theories going around. There's also the Jesus died but was resuscitated theory. That is, Jesus did die on the cross, but then he was resuscitated. It was his old body kick-started back to life again. But if that were true, then at some later point, Jesus would have had to die a normal human death again. And that is just not what the New Testament claims. The New Testament claim is that Jesus came back to life in a transformed and immortal body. It wasn't just his old body. It was old body miraculously transformed, which might explain why in some of the resurrection encounters the disciples don't immediately recognize Jesus. His body has been transformed. The idea that he was just resuscitated doesn't match up. Well, maybe Jesus came back as some sort of spirit. This is the Jesus the ghost theory. Jesus' body stayed dead, but in some spiritual ghostly form, Jesus came back and appeared to his disciples. But in the New Testament accounts, particularly Luke, Jesus goes to some length to show to them that he's not a ghost. 
He invites them to touch him, to check he has flesh and bones. He asks for some food and he eats it in front of them. Moreover, Jesus' body was never found. So you need some other theory then to explain how come no one could find or produce his body. Finally, there's a set of what I call D-factor theories. All of these theories say that the reality is that Jesus died on the cross and he stayed dead. His appearances, so these theories go, can be explained by some other D-factor. The first D-factor is deceit. That is, the claim that Jesus was alive was a deceit. It was a lie, a willful and deliberate lie propagated by the disciples. But you've got to evaluate whether you think that is historically and psychologically likely. After all, this was a lie that ended up costing those disciples big time. Most of them died because they maintained that lie. Is it really conceivable, if it was just a lie, that not one of them would crack under the very real prospect of death for what they knew to be a fabrication? Is that really the most likely story? It seems unlikely. The second D factor that is sometimes proposed is delusion. Here what the disciples experienced was some sort of en masse delusionary vision. Jesus was actually dead and buried, but they imagined he was alive. They genuinely thought that he had appeared bodily in their midst, that they had touched him, but in reality they were all mistaken. Jesus was actually in a grave somewhere. And the difficulty here is just the sheer scale of the delusionary vision required. Remember Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared not just to Peter, but also to the twelve, then to more than 500 eyewitnesses. That's about, you know, that's most of us at one moment, all sharing the same delusionary moment. Paul Barnett, Christian historian, put it this way, he said, two people sharing one bed seldom have the same dream. The proposal that between five and six hundred people on twelve or so separate occasions over forty days had the same visionary experience is extremely unlikely. Well, what about the third D factor theory? Devotion. The claim here is that the disciples were so devoted to Jesus that they felt like Jesus was still with them, even though he was actually dead in the grave. I've tried to represent it there in this little cartoon. This feeling that Jesus was alive led the disciples to proclaim to people, Jesus is alive, and even more, to then create these resurrection accounts that we've heard today as a way of trying to explain their feeling, their experience. Under this theory, the claim that Jesus was resurrected in the New Testament should not be read literally, but rather, and I'll quote, read it as the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart. 
uh, Tom Wright mounts a threefold counter-argument to this not uncommon liberal theological claim. First, he says, when these first century Jews used the word resurrection, they, they meant bodily resurrection. He says, the idea of a non-bodily resurrection would have been as much an oxymoron to the Apostle Paul as it would to both Jews and pagans of the day. Whether you believed in resurrection or not, the word meant bodies. Second, he says, if they meant some sort of non-bodily survival, there were other words to use. He says, as historians, we should not hold back from affirming that bodily resurrection is what the early Christians were talking about. They were not talking about a bodily spiritual survival. Had they wanted to do so, they had plenty of other language available to them, as indeed we do today. And third, he says, non-bodily survival doesn't actually cut historical ice. He says the common idea that when the early Christians said, Jesus was raised from the dead, they meant something like, He's alive in a spiritual, non-bodily sense, and we give him our allegiance as our Lord, is historically impossible. Not only did the word simply not mean that, if the early Christians had meant that, a belief of that kind could not explain why they hailed Jesus as Messiah and Lord, or in particular, why their belief about their own future resurrection took the very precise shape it did. See, if the disciples believed Jesus had survived death only in some non-physical way, that doesn't justify claiming he's the Messiah, the Christ. If Jesus' body was actually still in the grave, then he's a dead Messiah. And a dead Messiah ain't the Messiah. How, how would a Messiah without a body, rule on King David's throne forever. And the New Testament writers also clearly believe that whatever happened to Jesus was what would happen to them. And they always talked about the future of believers as a physical resurrection from the grave. The historical evidence points to the conclusion that when the New Testament author said Jesus has risen, they meant bodily. What the New Testament claims is that Jesus underwent a transformed bodily resurrection. You can see, as I've tried to put it in the diagram, point E, Jesus was alive. He truly died, was buried, but at his resurrection, Jesus entered into a new type of life. Yes, it was a physical human body. He had flesh and bones. He ate, he talked, he walked. You could have touched him if you were there. You could have tackled him to the ground if you wanted to. You could have tickled him if you thought to. But it was his old body transformed. Jesus could show them the wounds in his hands and his side. It was clearly his old body. It bore the marks of his glorious achievement at the cross. But it was his old body transformed. He was raised immortal. Paul puts it in Romans 6, 9. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
So in summary then, what is the case for Jesus' resurrection? There's three components to the historical case for Jesus' resurrection. First, the effect on those who became the first Christians. Something happened to transform these timid, fearful disciples into bold proclaimers that Jesus was alive. They stuck to their story that Jesus was the Messiah, even though everyone knew Jesus had died. And they maintained that story through extreme persecution, even to the end. Something has to explain that. Something has to explain their transformation. But second, there's the fact of the empty tomb, the missing body of Jesus. All the talk of Jesus' resurrection could so easily have been short-circuited and just cut down if someone just produced Jesus' body or could explain where it had gone. But the alternative explanations of what happened to his body just don't stack up. Or maybe, maybe just everyone went to the wrong tomb. In the midst of their grief, they got confused and went to an empty tomb by accident. But there were multiple witnesses who saw where Jesus' body was laid. They can't all have got it wrong. Or maybe the disciples stole the body. Well, but what about the guards that Matthew told us about who were placed at the tomb to prevent exactly that? How did the disciples get around that? Something happened to his body. Something happened to the disciples. Third, the eyewitness testimonies. We've read some of these testimonies this afternoon. They do not reek of fabrication. There are three things you could say in addition to the, about these testimonies. They are relatively restrained and unembellished. If you go and compare them to accounts written much later, like the um, so-called Gospel of Thomas, those accounts are way more fancy. These accounts we have in the New Testament are, are much more restrained. They have the marks of authentic, if surprised, witnesses. But also these accounts, they contain details that are unlikely to have been made up. For example, the first appearances of the risen Jesus were to women. But in the first century Jewish culture, the testimony of women was not admissible evidence in court. As shocking as that seems to us. If you were making up resurrection stories in the first century, why would you have in your fabrication Jesus appearing to people whose testimony would not be credible? That would be a crazy thing to do. Unless, of course, that's the way it actually happened. And in the same vein, the accounts contain what some call the embarrassment factor. Facts that put those who are mentioned in the accounts in a bit of an embarrassing position. Like the disciples who didn't believe. Or like the women who ran away in fright and didn't say anything when they'd actually just been instructed to do the opposite. If you are making a story up, why include details that are embarrassing for those who are telling them. These testimonies have the ring of authenticity about them. So moving then on to page 14, how strong, in summary, is this historical case? Uh, Tom Wright thinks when you put it all together, it's pretty strong, in fact, very strong. 
He says the empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus, when combined, present us not only a sufficient condition for the rise of early Christian belief, but also, it seems, a necessary one. Nothing else historians have been able to come up with has the power to explain the phenomena before us. Now, that's not quite mathematical proof. As he says, this remains, of course, unprovable in logical or mathematical terms. Now, if you're a science background, engineering background, you need to get your head around this. Not everything is like maths. Notice what he says here. He says, the historian is never in a position... I'll say that again. The historian is never in a position to do what Pythagoras did. Pythagoras constructed a theorem to prove that this must always be the case. With history, it is not like that. History, after all, is mostly the study of the unusual and unrepeatable. What we are after in history is high probability And this is to be attained by examining all the possibilities, all the suggestions, and asking how well they explain the phenomena. And so he concludes, in terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case presented that the tomb plus the appearances combination, that that is what generated early Christian belief, That case is as watertight as one is likely to find. So the historical case is very compelling. And what that means for for believers, for Christians, is that it is a comforting case. You know those times where you feel doubt? When you wonder, am I a Christian just because I've been brought up this way. Is Christianity more than just wishful thinking? When you, when you ask yourself, is it worth staying Christian when it sometimes seems to not make much sense? You, you had those times of doubt, of questioning. It's times like that when we're asking ourselves questions about the truthfulness of Christian belief that the strong historical case for Jesus' resurrection can be a real comfort to you. There is an historical fact at the centre of the Christian faith. Jesus was raised. The grave clothes were empty. They saw him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They might not have tickled him, but they touched him. He was, he is, alive, never to die again. Now, does that mean that the evidence we've looked at this afternoon is, a, is always a convincing case? Not necessarily. It depends on whether you're open to genuinely considering the evidence. If you've got a closed, what we might call a naturalistic worldview that says a resurrection like this just can't happen, well, no amount of historical evidence is probably going to sway you. You need to be open to the possibility that God 
could do something like this if he wanted to. Will you accept that fact? But even then, just accepting that Jesus did rise from the dead doesn't make you a Christian. Turn to page 15, the second last paragraph, sorry, rather the second paragraph on page 15 has a quote from Dr. Pincus Lapide. Now, Dr. Pincus Lapide is a Jew. He's not a Christian. As you can see there in your outline, he wrote a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. This is his conclusion, not a Christian. He says, how was it possible that his disciples, who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence, or strength of faith, were able to begin their victorious march of conversion? In a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. Thus, according to my opinion, the resurrection belongs to the category of the truly real. Pincus Lapide believes Jesus really did rise from the dead, that that's the best historical explanation for the evidence, for the transformed life of the eyewitnesses, for the empty tomb. That's the best historical, but he remained a Jew. He did not become a Christian. It's not enough to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. That's not what makes you a Christian. It's whether you've decided to respond to the living Jesus with faith and trust and obedience. Because the reality is human hearts are hard. In a parable Jesus tells in Luke 16, he has a line. He says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Even the historical fact that God has done something amazing and unique in resurrecting Jesus won't necessarily convince someone to become a Christian. Like Pincus Lapide. Because our hearts are hard. We don't want to accept what Jesus' resurrection might mean for him and for us, which we're going to explore more tonight. But when it does come to the case for Jesus' resurrection... The historical evidence, which is what we've been looking at so far this afternoon, it is compelling, it is comforting, but it's not everything. As a supplement to that foundational historical case, there is also the power of your own personal testimony. See, how do you know that Jesus is alive? Well, you know because the Bible tells you. You know also because the historical evidence points to that conclusion. But you also know that he's alive because you've been walking with him and following him for however long you've been a Christian. You pray to him. You ask for his help. You've experienced his truths and promises in your own life. You know he's alive, not just cognitively, but in your own life. 
Now, that is no substitute for the historical evidence and the testimony of Scripture. But it is confirmatory of what we read in the Scripture's testimony. The Bible records for me that Jesus was raised, and my own experience of following him reinforces that reality. The primary evidence for Jesus' resurrection is not my experience, it's the testimony of Scripture backed up by history. That's where the objective facts are laid out. But there is a subjective testimony that Jesus is alive, and that does count for something as well. My experience remains subjective, it's therefore secondary, but it is part of the picture. And actually, I think it's an increasingly important part of the picture as we share with others about Jesus' resurrection. People want to know not just the fact that Jesus was raised. They want to know, what does that mean for you, that Jesus is alive? Well, final reflection, what does all this mean? If you've been around Christian circles for a while, you know Christians talk about Jesus all the time. We talk about his life, we talk about his teaching, we talk about his miracles, we talk about his death, we talk about his resurrection, we talk about how he can be God and man, we talk about his character, we talk about the significance of his death and what that means, we talk about the different theories of what happened to his body when it disappeared from the tomb. But in the middle of all this talk, we can forget the most basic truth coming from the resurrection. It's this. And you can write it into the gap there on your page, right? Jesus, Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is not a concept. Jesus is alive. He's not a concept. He's alive. He's not some dead figure lost in the dust of history, like a Caesar or a Muhammad or a Buddha. He's not just a theory or a religious framework or a worldview or an interesting ethical system. No, Jesus, the man, is alive. He's been resurrected to a transformed, immortal, bodily life, never to die again. He's not a concept. He's a person who's alive. All the evidence we've looked at this afternoon, the eyewitness testimonies, the historical case, the failure of alternative theories, all points to that one truth. He's alive. He was dead. Now he's alive. Now. Right now, that changes everything. Not a concept. He's alive. And that's what we're going to explore the rest of this week. How good is that? I'm going to give you a moment just to gather your thoughts, reflect. You might want to jot something down. Then I'm going to read out the words of the old Christian hymn there on page 16, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. So let's just pause for a moment of quiet.
I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives, who once was dead. He lives, my everlasting head. He lives, triumphant from the grave. He lives, eternally to save. He lives, all glorious in the sky. He lives, exalted there on high. He lives to bless me with his love. And still he pleads for me above. He lives to raise me from the grave and me eternally to save. He lives, my kind, wise, constant friend, who still will keep me to the end. He lives, and while he lives, I'll sing, Jesus, my prophet, priest, and king, He lives my mansion to prepare, and he will bring me safely there. He lives all glory to his name, Jesus, unchangeably the same. Lord Jesus, you're alive. We're amazed, even a bit shocked by that reminder But we're so glad that you're alive. It's so wonderful. It's so joyful and exciting. You are the living one. You were dead, and behold, you are now alive forever and ever. Write this fact deeper into our hearts and minds so that we never forget it, and so that it shapes more and more everything we do for your glory and the glory of our Heavenly Father. Amen.